0: Hi, folks, this is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. His advice to the young woman was clear, concise, and curtly to the point. He said, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. Richard Dawkins. Now, we've all heard plenty of questions and debates around whether it's immoral to have an abortion, and uh, this debate, of course, has only accelerated since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and since some... States in America have introduced some rather draconian legislation. We're familiar. Is abortion immoral? If so, when and under what circumstances or, or time frames or conditions? That we're used to hearing and talking about. But this, not getting an abortion would be an act of immorality. Now, that seems novel. What was happening? Now... The situation Dawkins was replying to, and under which he made these comments, is interesting and perhaps telling. A woman on Twitter had, had messaged him saying that she was scared of something. She was scared that if she became pregnant and found out that her baby uh, had Down syndrome, it would, reckon, it would be a moral dilemma for her, an ethical dilemma. Should she keep the baby or not? And this was Richard Dawkins' response. Now, in debates about abortion, there are familiar lines of debate. We could say, some of us might say, well, it's a woman's body. It's her choice, fair enough. Others might argue in a debate, well, who, oh, jeez. I mean, under ideal conditions, mm, oh, I squirm but maybe we can sympathize with, with the mother who Down syndrome baby might represent extra challenges and hardships, and we can go, ooh, man, I don't know, but I, 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 can, I can sympathize with that. And then, of course, there are others who might say, under no circumstance is it right to ever terminate a pregnancy. I mean, it's a consistent ethic, and all of those make a certain amount of sense. We're, we're used to all of those Ethics and lines of a, of attack and debate, you could say. But what Dawkins had said was none of those things. As you can imagine, when Dawkins made this comment, judgment was swift and very harsh. The Twitterverse erupted in outrage. He was called a Nazi. He was called a proponent of eugenics. He was absolutely lambasted online for making such cold and callous uh, remarks. And so apparently feeling the need to defend himself, Dawkins responded to his critics by saying he was just advising the woman to do what the vast majority of parents already do when they learn their baby has Down syndrome, they abort it, and he isn't wrong. According to the BBC, at least in Britain, a full 90% of parents abort uh, a child if they know it has Down syndrome in the womb. And that's no doubt controversial, but my sermon's not about that. My point is when you actually parse out Dawkins' words, what Dawkins had said was not just to advise the woman to do what the vast majority of people already do. His words were more loaded than that. What Dawkins has actually said is, it would be immoral not to terminate the pregnancy. It'd be wrong not to terminate it. Now, strong language and idea to our sensibilities, and at first glance, Dawkins' tweet, it sounds incredibly provocative, but What Dawkins was really doing was just echoing a story, a very ancient and primitive story, told for centuries and millennia, still told today. With that, welcome back to our series, Revisionist History. You recall that last week we learned that that many of the things we consider to be self-evident truths are in fact not self-evident, they're not empirical, they're rooted in stories. And Dawkins' statement on Twitter was no different. What he was doing was merely parroting a very ancient and primal story. And what is that story? It is this. For humanity to thrive and progress, we must get rid of the weak. And I'm sure Dawkins was well aware that he would have had many of the great ancient philosophers in his corner. Uh, Plato, who we playfully met last week, uh, thought that for a child to be worth rearing, it should be malleable, disposed to virtue and physically fit. And if not, parents should properly dispose of them in secret so that no one will know what has become of them. Aristotle, in full support, defective children should be abandoned. It was the moral thing to do. As to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. Infanticide, which is different than abortion, but actually birthing a baby and then leaving it. Infanticide was very common practice in the ancient world. It has been for much of history. Archaeological records show as much. Around the world and down through history, a vast majority of cultures have considered this to be self-evident. We're better off without the weak. And yet, my guess is this morning, everything inside of us is screaming, no, no. Where does that instinct come from? Where does this story about the weak and strong come from? How does it have enduring power? Where does it find its enduring strength? The answer might surprise you. It comes from nature. You know, used to, I, I love nature. I talk a lot about going out on hikes and whatnot, and it's easy to sort of have a romantic notion about nature, especially when we live mostly urban lives and everything we do in nature is sort of, hey, we're hiking in the mountains. Isn't this beautiful? But for those who study nature. It sometimes has some startling truths to it. And a couple of weeks ago, I was walking through Kitchener Library and walking through, and I come across this book right here. It's coming. It, a book. Yeah, a book. Huh, all right. Never mind. I come across this book by Werner Herzog. And it's called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. I was like, oh man, I love the sound of that. That's like the greatest title ever. It would be so impactful right now. Wouldn't it help if we could see the book? Anyway, oh well. Now, Werner Herzog, I've talked about him before because I believe he created the greatest documentary film in the history of movie-making, Grizzly Man, which is really the story of uh, how we see nature. Is it harmonious like Timothy Treadwell saw it or more like Herzog saw it? But as I was reading his book, I realized how much other films this guy's created and just how wild he is about creating films. Um, He wanted to make a film about a real-life Irish tycoon who wanted to build an opera house in the middle of the Peruvian jungle. And part of this guy's real story is that he had this 320-ton ship, and he couldn't get it through the jungle, so he had it disassembled and carted over the jungle and into a river on the other side. But Herzog's idea for the film is he didn't want to disassemble it. He wanted to tug a 320-ton ship across the Peruvian jungle. And to do that, he hired 800 indigenous people to put this thing on pulleys and carry it through the jungle. This guy's a madman, Werner Herzog. Of course, he ran into a ton of trouble. He started going bankrupt, losing money. He couldn't make the thing work. He's there, trapped for three months, out of money, and he's simply observing the jungle. And Werner Herzog, most of his films are in nature somewhere. He spends a lot of time observing nature. And throughout this period, his, the people he'd hired, people are dying, getting bit by poisonous snakes. All of this awful stuff is happening. It was in this filming that he shot this brief little clip on his reflection on the story of nature. What is the story nature is telling? We'll hand it over to Herzog.
1: I, I see it more full of obscenity. It's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they they sing, they just screech in pain. Taking a close look at at what's around us, there, there is some sort of a harmony, it is harmony of overwhelming and collective murder but when i say this i say this all full of admiration for the Changi. it is not that i hate it i love it i love it very much but i love it against my better judgment
0: there's a real pick me up this morning hi love oh i love Werner herzog in case the thick accent got in the way, here's how he sees the story of nature. story of obscenity. Nature is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it's the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. This cracked me up. I don't think they sing, they just screech in pain taking a close look at what is around us. There is some sort of harmony, but it is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. Wow. Herzog sees in nature what the ancients saw in nature, a struggle for survival where the strong get rid of the weak. This is the story Richard Dawkins was telling to that woman on Twitter. And yet my guess is, again, most of us are going, no, that's absurd. That may be a story nature is telling, but it is not the highest and truest of stories. Society, we say to ourselves, should be judged by it how it treats the weak, not how it disposes of them. But why? Why Why, when for the vast majority of history, the world considered it to be the law of nature, a moral imperative to rid ourselves of the weak, why do we think so differently today? Well, Friedrich Nietzsche knew, that towering philosopher of the 19th century. He knew where it came from and why we don't think that way. He knew what had brought about this change of heart on a worldwide scale. And he called the culprit who did this life's nausea. He called the culprit a disease that had infected humanity with the poison of pity. That's a great line. And what was this disease according to him? Christianity. He says in his book, The Antichrist, pity on the whole thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law... selection. For Nietzsche, this was both a biological reality and a vision of ethical living. In fact, Nietzsche considered himself a philanthropist. He was a lover of humanity, and how do you love humanity? By getting rid of the weak. Loved, loved humanity in his mind. And so it's no surprise that he would see in Christianity something he called disgusting. He says this, "'Christianity is disgust with life, dressed up as faith.'" It has taken the side of all the weak, the low, the botched. It has made an ideal out of antagonism to all the self-preservative instincts of sound life. Christianity was immoral because it went against the laws of nature. And Nietzsche was, of course, no Nazi, but you can understand how these ideas in the wrong hands of the Nazis loved to use Nietzsche. Stories and ideas have consequences. And the basic idea is this. If there is no God above us, And if humans are simply a part of nature, there's nothing above nature. The nature is itself God. Nature is itself the ultimate good. It is the way to ethical living. And we know what nature does. It selects the strong and discards the weak. This was the story the ancients told. The story Nietzsche tells, Werner Herzog tells, Dawkins tells. And if we resist that notion, it can only be because we have been infected with the poison of pity. Theologian Glenn Scrivener explains that 2,000 years ago, an upside-down story arrived, and it seems to have changed and made the world upside-down. He says this, if natural selection means survival of the fittest and sacrifice of the weakest, Christianity is about the sacrifice of the fittest. For the survival of the weakest, it is a moral revolution, confounding the Nietzsche's of the world and giving hope to the botched. The center of this revolution is unique vision of God. And what does God look like? To quote Brian Zahn again, I love this line by him. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We didn't always know God was like Jesus, but now we do. Vision of God. And what is Jesus like then? Well, he's Compassionate. One of the words most frequently used in the Gospels to describe Jesus' emotional life was compassion. And the Greek word that the writers used to describe this emotion is actually the verb form of the word intestines. Now, of course, today we use the word heart to describe our deepest feelings, but for ancient people, deepest feelings were experienced the innards, the bowels. I suppose it a little less romantic though to talk about the bowels though you could try this for a valentine card. I love you so much honey you make my bowels move. It's so moving. Just, mm, move me right in there. Nietzsche scorned pity. He scorned compassion. But over and over again, the gospel writers talk about Jesus being moved with compassion. In Jesus' response in these coming stories, he would come to the gospels and we'd go, that seems normal, that that's actually makes some sense. But imagine Jesus in an ancient setting where to be low and weak and botched was seen as something to be scorned. Try reading these stories of Jesus anew. Knowing that in the ancient world, what Jesus was feeling was not natural. Two blind men were sitting by the wayside and heard that Jesus was going by. Have pity on us, Master, Son of David, they shouted. The crowd scolded them and told them to be silent, because that's what you do. But they shouted all the more, have pity on us, Master, Son of David. Jesus came to a stop, called them, what do you want me to do for you? Master, they replied, we want you to open our eyes. Jesus was very moved. And he touched their eyes, and at once they could see again, and they followed him. Mark 1, a man with a virulent skin disease came up to him. He knelt down and begged him, if you want to, you can make me clean. In the belly, Jesus was deeply moved. He reached out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do want to be clean. The disease left him at once, and he was clean. Luke 7, as Jesus got near to the gate of the city, a young man was being carried out dead. He was the only son of his mother. She was a widow there's a substantial crowd of townspeople with her. When Jesus saw her, he was very sorry for her. Don't cry, he said to her. Then he went up and touched the beer, and the people carrying it stood still. A young fellow, he said, I'm telling you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And then Luke 10, one of Jesus' most famous stories. Once upon a time, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was set upon by brigands. They stripped him and beat him and ran off, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he went past on the opposite side. So too a Levite came by the place. He saw him too and went past on the opposite side. But a traveling Samaritan came to where he was. And when he saw him, he was filled with pity. He came over to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put him on his own beast, took him to an inn and looked after him. The next morning, as he was going on his way, he gave the innkeeper two deniers. Take care of him, he said. And on my way back, I'll pay you whatever else you need to spend on him. Which of these three do you think turned out to be the neighbor of the man who was set upon by them, the one who showed mercy on him? Well, Jesus said to him, you go and do the same. Go and do the same. Jesus' inner emotional life is consistently one of compassion when he sees suffering and weakness. It's everywhere in his teaching. It's everywhere in his stories. Instructed his and followers to do the same. Larry Hurtado, the historian, says the Christian ethic of love and compassion, it was utterly strange, even ridiculous in the Roman era. We simply do not know of any other Roman era religious group in which love played this important role in discourse or behavioral teaching. And when Jesus said, go and do likewise, he unleashed something that would radically change our world. We're getting to the bad stuff next week, all right? But let's talk about a few things this did. Health and medicine obviously didn't originate with Christians. Every society has had medicine, various sorts. It was mostly available to the rich and privileged, and when it was sort of given out en masse, it was usually to soldiers and slaves so that they would get back to fighting. The idea that medicine and doctors should be available to the poor, the weak, and slaves was a notion no one had thought of. But with the birth of Christianity, a new idea emerges. Health care for all. David Bentley Hart in his book, Atheist Delusions, he sketches out the early development that gave us hospitals, and for some of us lucky ones here in Canada, universal health care. St. Ephraim the Syrian, when the city of Edessa was ravaged by plague, established hospitals open to all who were afflicted. St. Basil the Great founded a hospital in Cappadocia with a ward set aside for the care of lepers whom he did not disdain to nurse with his own hands. St. Benedict of Nursia opened a free infirmary at Monte Cassino and made care of the sick a paramount duty of his monks. In Rome, the Christian noblewoman and scholar St. Fabiola established the first public hospital in Western Europe and despite her wealth and position, often ventured out into the streets personally to seek out those who needed care. St. John Chrysostom, while patriarch of Constantinople, used his influence to fund several such institutions in the city. James William Broadman, historian, says, come the fifth century, a cascade of hospitals, the Benedictines alone were responsible for starting 2,000 hospitals. Today, the Good Samaritan is so ingrained in us, we have things like the Red Cross, which essentially promises, no matter how bad it is, no matter how awful the conflict or natural disasters will show up. Today, we assume the Good Samaritan. Incredible reversal. What else happened? Well, we all know what Rome was really famous for, right? We've all seen Russell Crowe fighting and the Colosseum gladiator. Rome is often remembered for its gladiatorial games, where the weak, the botched, the slaves, the poor, the powerless were sent out to be sort of fight one another for the entertainment of Roman masses. And part of the reason early Christians ended up being persecuted themselves is because they hated these games. Marcus Felix, at the time, he launched this accusation at the early Christians, you do not attend our shows, you take no part in the processions, you are not present at our public banquets, and you abhor the sacred gladiatorial games. For these crimes, Christians were considered enemies of humanity. It would take a few hundred years before Jesus' path had enough influence to overturn these, but it happened under the Christian Emperor Honorius, something like that. And his changing his mind is of interest to me. This is the story. Honorius, who inherited the empire of Europe, put the stop to the gladiatorial combats which had been long held at Rome. The occasion of his doing so arose from the following circumstance. A certain man of the name Telemachus had embraced the ascetic life. He set out from the east and for this reason had repaired to Rome. There, when the abominable spectacle was being exhibited, he went himself into the stadium and, stepping down into the arena, endeavored to stop the men who were wielding their weapons against one another. The spectators of the slaughter were indignant and inspired by the triad fury of the demon who delights in these bloodiest deeds, stoned the peacemaker to death. When the admirable emperor was informed of this, he numbered Telemachus and the number of victorious martyrs and put an end to that impious spectacle. Spiritual realities take time to be grasped by individuals and churches. They can take centuries to become rooted in our, in our culture. But of this achievement, William Luckius has said, there is scarcely any reform so important in the moral history of humankind as the suppression of the gladiatorial games a feat that must be almost exclusively ascribed to the Christian church. But back to Dawkins. His advice to this curious woman on Twitter about it being a moral imperative to abort a baby with Down syndrome has made a ton of sense in the Roman era. Common practice for Romans to leave, heeding Aristotle's advice, leave their babies in garbage dumps and much like Telemachus there was a movement within the early Christians to rescue these babies in fact it was a nun like Macrina she lived in the 300s responsible for starting welfare distribution centers hospitals orphanages and daily was her practice every day she would walk out to the garbage dumps of the city and rescue the abandoned babies and over time, Valentinian I made it the law that parents have to rear their own children. Killing or abandoning your infant was outlawed. But why should it be so? There's nothing natural or self-evident about that, whether it be Darwin or Himmler or Nietzsche or Herzog or the ancients Plato and Aristotle. Why should it be so? According to the naturalist story... That is the way of the world. Humanity is best served by abandoning and getting rid of the weak. That is the natural story, and I would dare to say this. To believe in care, compassion, pity, valuing the weak, sick, voiceless, or marginalized, is to believe in the supernatural. There are two ways to look at this. How do we see the story of the world as a big picture? If you're a dutiful historian, you will look at the facts and no further. And so someone like a Tom Holland would, would say this, in the first century, some remarkable new values were injected into the world, into a mad and brutal world. And those values, of course, continue to shape us today. Now these values were prefigured in the Hebrew Scriptures but something happened in the first century that these, this care, these values, it like burst the banks and suddenly started affecting everything. And a good historian would leave it there. That's what we know what happened. Something wild was injected into the first century and slowly you could say like yeast in bread or a seed in the ground. These new values grew and grew and grew over time. And of course, throughout the centuries, there are seasons of drought and bad weather, but over 2,000 years, these values introduced themselves, have entirely remade the world. As a historian, you would leave it there, but I am no historian. I would interpret it this way 2,000 years ago, the God man Jesus died on the cross. And that changed the world down to the molecular level. And when Jesus rose from the dead, a new day had dawned in the world. Something truly new was at work. A new world order had emerged. And when this Jesus left his Holy Spirit in the world, the spirit that came at Pentecost, the yeast of the kingdom, the yeast of his kingdom was put into place. And 2,000 years later now, it's slowly still growing, growing, just like Jesus said it would. Don't believe the virtues like compassion, pity, or care, I don't believe they're at all natural or innate. I actually side with Herzog on this one. The law of nature is harsh and brutal. The harmony of the world is, as Herzog says, overwhelming in collective murder. But I think at the cross, at Pentecost, the spirit of God was unleashed. and Something brand new began to happen. This past summer, I took my kids to this place. Splash on in Aurelia. Oh, Lord, just looking at it pains me. (laughs) What happens is you pay money, put on a life jacket, swim out with your kids, then run around on a slippery and wobbly surface for two hours. To me, this is like a middle-aged, hey, do you want to injure yourself? Pay some money, here you go. And the day we went, it was pretty overcast. It wasn't that busy. And so we put on our life jackets. We swam out there, and the kids were loving it. And uh, I was slipping, falling all over the place. Of course, we're playing tag, and boy, half hour in, I was so tired. I'm chasing them. And I fell over the side one time. I'm like, oh, my goodness, again. And I dragged myself over. and I was out of breath, and I just... Oh, it's sad. And I was trying to regain my breath, and I looked over there, and there was a boy about ten years old crying. And I sort of, where's your parents, man? This isn't my responsibility. There's no one around. I said, Hey, buddy, what's the problem, man? And he said, uh, I'm too fat. Can't climb back up. I'm stuck in the water. I said, Okay, dude, I got you. And I, uh, hauled him up beside me and he kept crying. And I said, What's your name? He said, My name's Hudson. And uh, I said, What's going on? He said, I don't know. Life is really hard right now. My parents are getting divorced. And he said, school's coming in two weeks and I'm always made fun of at school because I'm fat. And he just kept crying there and I'm like, God, thank you for giving me this time out break. But I said, Hudson, listen, that sounds tough, but we've got an hour and a half here. Why don't you and I have some fun? And so I called over my kids, I said, hey, we got a new friend, Hudson, and uh, we're gonna play with him, and he's gonna play with us. And I gave them that look that said, don't mess this up. (laughs) I gave them a look, said, you pick on this kid at all, I will wreck you. They got the message. So we're like, all right, game back on. And I couldn't believe it. Hudson turned on me immediately. (laughs) It was my turn to be it. And he shouts out, the grandpa's it. The grandpa's it. (sighs) Oh, really, Hudson? Hmm. And he's falling off. And every time he falls off, I have to haul him back up. And suddenly, there's 10 total kids there. And I realize there's not a single adult out there. I'm the only sucker... Who swam out with his kids? Thanks a lot, parents. And they all keep asking, "Hey, this looks like fun. Can we, can we play as well?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." And now I've got ten kids running around, and I'm the weakest, and like, "Ah, grandpa's it." And I'm like, ah. <sighs> But then, finally, back, killing everything, sore. Hudson says, "Hey, my dad's waving at me from the shore. I gotta go." I said, all right, see you Hudson, and thanks for playing with us. Jumped in, just turned around, said, thanks, mister. I'll never see him again, but what is this right now? Why do I get emotional? It's not natural. It's the supernatural work of God. Every time we feel that bowel-twisting pinch of pity in our guts, I truly believe it is the Holy Spirit working in us, within us, and in our world. Because so often we ask ourselves, where is God? And we're, we're like, oh man, I'd like to see some divine sign. I'd like to see some something unmistakable happen. Hear the voice of God. I'm telling you, every time you experience compassion and pity, God is at work in you. Where is God? Right there in that feeling. But every time that we, like Jesus, find ourselves moved in our gut by the suffering and weak and the overlooked in the world, it isn't natural. It's the supernatural work of God. Every time I drive by we were in Victoria and I see that homeless encampment there and I, and I sit and I think, God, there's nothing I can do. But every time I go by, I simply say, Lord, have mercy. That's the work of God. Every time you find yourself watching the news and you go, God, God, this is awful. I don't know what to do, but God, I'm praying for a ceasefire. What is that instinct? That's the work of God in our lives, calling us to be the peacemaking, divine image bearers that we are. Every time you see that person panhandling and you don't look away, but you look at them in the eye, and even if you have no change, you say, hey, even just saying, hey, that isn't natural. It's the supernatural work of God in our lives. Every time you're working at a soup kitchen and you give your entire afternoon to prepare a meal for the homeless, it isn't natural being there. It's the supernatural work of God in our lives. Every time we talk about something here this morning, the safe consumption site in Kitchener, and you're sitting here this morning going, maybe I can help with one of those needs. That's not a natural response. The supernatural work of God. And every time you find yourself confronted with the fat boy in the water named Hudson, you take the time to hear his story, and include him in your fun. It isn't natural. It's a supernatural work of God in our lives. And may you this morning, this week, become more aware of it. May it grow in you like Jesus' kingdom does, slowly like yeast. May you know the work of God in your lives this week.